You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Molly Payne Wynn. The story was recorded in January 2014 at One Longfellow Square in Portland, Maine. So one summer, I was an accomplice in murder, or rather, maybe I should say assassination because it was a very targeted killing of over 75,000 lake trout. We uh, went out on the lake just after ice out in June and set numerous very large gill nets a day. And if we were lucky enough, we would haul in nets while the fish were still fresh and they would be alive and we'd smack their heads on the side of the boat, throw their dead bodies back into the lake. But most of the time, we weren't lucky enough for the live catches and the nets would linger in the water for up to two weeks. And when we would haul those nets in, it would be full of dead, rotting pieces and bits of lake trout. And the easiest way to get those fish out of the nets, well, the ones that didn't just fall apart at the touch, um, was to actually squeeze the bodies with your hands until the swim bladders burst. And um, there's a sort of small explosion of flesh. And then you pull the fish out of the net and throw it back into the lake. And um, I can vividly remember sitting portside with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my lap and being starving but unable to eat that sandwich. And it wasn't because of the waves and the possibility of seasickness or the fact that my hands were so numb with cold that I couldn't even feel the freaking sandwich. Um, But it was the smell of dead, rotting fish. And I quickly learned that if I sprayed my scarf with perfume or Febreze before I got on the boat each morning, that it would sort of subdue the smell for at least a few hours of my day. Um, <clears throat> I, <laughs> I uh, definitely was, was unprepared for what uh, awaited me when I signed up to head to Yellowstone National Park Um, I can definitely recall the interview, um, and mind you, this was a volunteer effort. I was there as a volunteer. I wasn't there to meet a parole requirement or a community service requirement. (laughs) I actually signed up to do this on my own, um, because as a 19-year-old college student eager for field biology experience and um, living in upstate New York, I was ready to head out west and... uh, learn about Yellowstone. And I remember reading as much literature as I could about non-native lake trout in Yellowstone Lake before the interview. 
and feeling this kind of sense of disappointment when most of the questions were, can you withstand cold, harsh conditions? And I think I sealed my fate when I said, I'm from Syracuse, New York, and uh, I live in cold, harsh conditions. So I will say that all of that reading did sort of educate me on why the National Park Service has such a vendetta against lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. The lake trout are the bad guys. They're non-native. They were introduced in the lake uh, about the late 1980s, um, presumably by fishermen who wanted to catch big fish when they were fishing in Yellowstone. But aside from eating the um, native trout by the thousands, they actually don't function the same in the ecosystem as the native trout. So the native trouts um, are found in the shallower, shallower reaches of the lake, and they spawn up in the tributaries, and therefore grizzly bears and eagles and all the other very large charismatic animals of Yellowstone can feed on them. Whereas the lake trout, the bad guys, just kind of hang out in the deep, dark portions of the lake, and they're not a food for anybody, um, except for themselves sometimes, I guess. Uh, so um, there's a long story there, but... Um, there were several other opportunities for me that summer to sort of get out into the park, and I quickly realized that in between sort of squeezing dead fish out of nets and slicing open their swim bladders and throwing their bodies back into the lake for 10 hours a day, four days a week, 475 hours of my summer, that I had all of the wonders of Yellowstone National Park at my disposal. And there was a trip into the backcountry, and the purpose of which was to document the presence of young native trout in small tributaries of the Yellowstone River. I should say the purpose of it for the National Park Service was that. The purpose for me was to get the hell off that boat. <laughs> um, so I quickly signed up for that trip, and it was a couple days in the backcountry. Um, we would average about 10 miles a day, um, and we had very heavy packs and equipment that we would carry around. We were basically traipsing through the woods with chest waders um, and full backpacks on. And so you can imagine after being in the fresh air all day and, and uh, very rugged wild west that um, getting back to camp each night, you felt pretty exhausted. And there was one night in particular, it was probably a couple days in on the trip, that... Um, uh, the other intern, Alexis, and I decided that as soon as we got back to camp, we were going to set up our tent and we were going to get in our sleeping bags and go to sleep, and that was it. And we were going to get so much sleep, and it was going to be great. So we finished dinner, and we climbed into our little two-man tent that we had set up along the edge of a, um, the edge of a tree line, and there was a big, expansive meadow on the other side of the trees. And no sooner had we crawled into our sleeping bags... Then one of the um, park biologists came over to our tent and informed us that um, he and the other biologists had heard some large mammals in the woods and that we should be prepared um, that they probably were grizzly bears. And so, mind you, Alexis is from Michigan, and I am from New York, neither of which have grizzly bear populations. And he made sure that we both had our cans of bear spray, and for those of you who don't know what bear spray is, um, it's a small can of very potent mace that is to be used in the event that you're being attacked by a grizzly bear. And it's in this harness 
that you can wear on your belt loop, and it has a safety cap on top. And I'm not really sure what scared me more, the idea that I could be attacked by a grizzly bear or the fact that I had a small can of mace to defend myself. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of hoping that in the event that a grizzly bear attacked, um, and I had to use my bear spray, that A, the wind was in the right direction because you need it at your back. Um, the grizzly bear has to be pretty much within four feet of you for this, this bear spray to work. And you actually have to hit the bear in the face <laughs> with the spray. So <laughs> I was kind of more heavily relying on these biologists that had pistols, honestly. Um, so Alexis and I are lying in our tents and we've dug out our bear spray and we have it I, I'm just, I recall lying there with the bear spray on my chest, breathing and just shaking and like being terrified that, oh my God, I might actually have to use this stuff. Um, so, you know, we kind of settle down and we finally fall asleep and no sooner do we fall asleep than we hear the biologists screaming our names from across the field. And they're approaching our tent very quickly and they're telling us, get up, get up and move your stuff everything into the middle of the field. And we're like, oh my God, what's happening? The bears are coming. <laughs> there was a lightning storm and lightning was striking and there were trees falling all around us. And um, so we had to relocate our entire camp setup into the middle of this field in the hopes that nobody would be um, taken out by a tree. So it wasn't the bears, it was actually the trees were the danger now. Um, so we moved into the middle of the field, and needless to say, I did not get an, any sleep whatsoever, and was very grateful when the biologist told us that the next day was off for field work and that we could um, explore the area, which meant taking a nap all day. <laughs> um, so, you know, after, after this terrifying experience, I, something has, had definitely changed for me, but it, it took me a long time to realize um, but I should, I should let you know that um, other interns are still doing this to this day. Um, the, the effect on the lake trout hasn't made a huge difference. They're still coming out of the lake. The um, invasives are still present, um, but the Park Service is still working to kind of remove those um, pesky lake trout. So rest assured, other interns were scared shitless. Um, in the preceding summers. But um, so several years later, I find myself on another boat uh, on the Kennebec River, more dead fish, more rotting bodies. Um, after hours of actually making the fish throw up so that we could look at their barf and uh, <laughs> see their stomach content and um, get clues to what their diet is, um, I was getting really hungry. And... <laughs> There, was, there were supplies for peanut butter and jelly, but I quickly realized that there were no um, knives or forks or anything to make the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I proceeded to take the fillet knife, which had only moments ago sliced open some fish, and I wiped it on my jeans, and I stuck it in the peanut butter, and I spread it on the bread, much to the dismay of my new colleagues. This is the first day of graduate school for me. Um, and I sat there and I realized just how far I had come. (laughs) 
That was Molly Payne Wynn. Molly is the monitoring coordinator for the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, an unprecedented collaborative effort to restore 11 species of sea-run fish in New England's second largest river. Molly has pursued a variety of research topics in fisheries, most recently river herring habitat use patterns through otolith chemistry at the University of Southern Maine and otolith growth and microchemistry as a research assistant in the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She loves the water in exploring Maine and awaits her next scientific adventure. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to One Longfellow Square for hosting the show, to Skylar Bear for producing the show, and to the Grizzly Bears I saw in Yellowstone that one time for not eating me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>